You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. Well, Citizens fam, it is an honor to be with you today. I met Justin, your pastor, years ago when he was working for Crew at the University of Alabama. And our paths crossed with a lot of mutual friends through the years. And I remember now before him coming to Birmingham, he had narrowed in, I think, on three different cities, was potentially looking at of where to plant in the Southeast and sat with him at Red Cat, Nail Railroad Park, and pleaded with him to come to Birmingham. And part of that was because I selfishly wanted to be in the same city with him and pastor close to him, but also knew his heart, knew the vision for what desiring citizens to be. And I want more churches with the heartbeat of citizens in our city. And so I'm so grateful. I really, I'm honored uh, to be here. I love your pastor. Citizens is now church home to some of my favorite people I've ever pastored. The, the hands are here. I don't know if y'all have met Alex and Brooke Cox, some incredible folks uh, that are here with y'all. And I pray for you privately, but we also regularly pray for your church family publicly within Iron City. And I'm so grateful to be able to be with you on this uh, Lord's Day this morning. We're continuing the journey, or you're continuing your journey through the gospel of Luke. It's always interesting to come in and uh, preach in a sermon series that I've not been a part of up to this point, especially when you're given the assignment to preach a whole bunch of names. And Kat, again, you crushed it, sis. Thank you uh, for doing that. But last week, I did listen to the sermon from last week, and uh, early on in the sermon, Pastor Justin mentioned, uh, referenced 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable, which is true, amen? But passages like this make us ask the question, really? How are all these names profitable for us? In the Bible, genealogy, that's what this list of names is, a genealogy, Genealogies play a crucial role in the scriptures. Three of the first 10 chapters in the Bible include genealogies. But if we're honest, I don't know how many of you have begun a read through the Bible in a year plan. When we start those plans, it's these kinds of lists that we're tempted to first skip over in our Bible reading plans, right? But unlike us 21st century Western individualistic folks, all of Luke's first century readers would have seen the value in genealogies. I think it's important for us to realize where we are today. We're one of the first generations and cultures in the history of the world where most of us don't know our great-grandparents' names. I really like to read biographies of dead people, but I often don't like to read biographies written by dead people. And one of the reasons is, is because too often when I'm reading them, they spend too much time, at least in my opinion, talking about people's family lines and the land that their family owned. But people in place that you hail from has been understood by almost every previous culture and generation to inform so much of who you are. There has been some resurgence of interest in our family roots in recent days. Stephanie Crowder is an African-American. She's a New Testament scholar. And she pointed out in the early 70s how the book and then TV show Roots inspired many African-Americans to trace their family roots. One of the many things that kidnapping and slavery stole from our black brothers and sisters was a connection to their family heritage. But I know most of us in the room, if we were given a census sheet, we would check white on there. And for us, I think we also need to realize 
that whiteness has stolen a lot of our understanding of family roots. White is not a biblical category. White is not an ethnicity. We're all from somewhere, aren't we? And unless you're a Native American, that somewhere is not here. But things like Ancestry.com have helped many people discover more of who they are through discovering more about their family tree and where they come from. We've actually had members of Iron City that have discovered and been able to meet long-lost biological family members through these sites and tests. But today, we're going to see Jesus' genealogy traced back all the way to the ancestor that we all have in common. But let's start where Luke starts this genealogy in verse 23. Let's look at this again together. Before the genealogy begins, he has a statement about Jesus. Remember what just happened in Luke chapter three? Jesus has just been baptized by John. The spirit descends upon Jesus. The father speaks over Jesus. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So that's the scene that's just happened. Jesus has been anointed by the spirit and commissioned by his father for his public ministry. But look at what Luke records as the preface to this genealogy in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. We know from the scriptures that Jesus is patient. There's one more example of that right here for us. Jesus waited for 30 years before beginning his public ministry. The Bidi Anyabuile has a great little commentary on Luke, and one of the things he pointed out is that priests within Israel began their public ministry at 30 years old. And we know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the final great high priest, right? But if we think there's ever an exception to that rule of someone that could start before 30, it's Jesus, right? But still, Jesus chose to patiently wait to begin his ministry. I think it's probably a good word for congregations like ours, like Iron City and Citizens, filled with a lot of young people, with a lot of zeal. We don't have to be in a hurry, brothers and sisters. We can be patient. Most things that last, good things that last, are cultivated slowly over time. Let's look at the rest of verse 23. Again, the beginning of this genealogy. It says, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Luke is referencing what he's already told his readers. Jesus' conception was not natural. It was supernatural. The same God who spoke the world into existence spoke life into Mary's womb. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. But Luke is not saying that Joseph wasn't Jesus' real dad. Again, if you look at this genealogy, Jesus' genealogy, his legal line actually goes through Joseph. And as a pastor, I've had people that have made this discovery and have come to me perplexed by this, confused by this, even troubled by the fact that this genealogy runs through Joseph. I think one of the reasons why this is troubling for people is that people don't really believe or understand that adoption really makes someone your child. Children who have been adopted are as much your child as those who come out of your loins and out of your womb. Over 30 of the 90 kids at Iron City have been adopted. And if you wanna make an Iron City parent mad, you go up and ask, which one are your real kids? Again, in Jesus Adoption is real. This is good news for all of us. Because because of sin, we're all spiritual orphans. The only way to become a true child of God is through being adopted into his family. 
And again, the good news for us is that adopted kids are real kids. Paul tells us that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. And if adoption isn't, doesn't really make you part of the family, if we look at Luke chapter three, if it's not real, then we have no hope. We can never be made part of God's family. The gospel falls apart, but the good news is that adoption is real and you really can be made part of God's family. But before we get into some specific names in Jesus' genealogy, I wanna put out, point out a couple things to you. One is that there are 77 names listed here. And if you're familiar with the rest of the Bible, again, Kat, it was amazing, amazing. If you're familiar with the rest of the Bible, you'll be familiar with some of the names in this list. But there's other names that are mentioned here that this is the only time where they're mentioned in the Bible. Again, as we think about application of this is, I think we need to think about that we don't always know or recognize the names of people who've greatly influenced our lives. Again, think about the names in your own family. How far back can you go? Can you go to your great-grandparents? Do you know what their names actually were? But if you're a Christian, if you're part of God's family, do you know the name of the person who first shared the gospel with a member of your family? What about those who've been greatly used by the Lord in the history of the church? We don't know, often know the names of those that influence them the most. Most people will be forgotten, even in our families. So hear me today, don't aim to be famous. Aim to be faithful. We're going to be forgotten but leave a legacy of faith and faithfulness to Jesus. Secondly, one thing to point out before getting into these names, both of Jesus' genealogies in Matthew and Luke include names of people that we do know from the Old Testament. And some of these people are really big sinners. If you look at Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy, you've got Gentile prostitutes, people who committed incest, murder, rape, adultery, Luke does not edit out names of Jesus' messed up descendants. If we're honest, we all have people in our family tree that we'd rather not claim, right? Those crazy cousins and uncles that we'd rather our friends not meet. But Jesus' messed up family are included intentionally in his family tree. Jesus came from a mess in order to redeem a mess. Jesus came from a mess in order to redeem a mess. You can't pick your family members, but you can pick your friends. And Jesus was called a friend of sinners. And the good news for sinful, messed up people like you and me is that Jesus will welcome anyone who sees their need for him. Not just welcome us in as friends, but will adopt us into his family. In Hebrews chapter two, we find Jesus is not like us. He's not like us in that, wanting to keep his distance from those crazy family members. But Hebrews chapter two tells us that Jesus isn't ashamed to claim you, no matter what you've done. If you come to him in repentance and faith, he's not ashamed to call you his brother, not ashamed to call you a part of his family. Last week, Pastor Justin reminded you and me as I listened to it, Luke's express purpose in writing this gospel. In Luke chapter one, verse four, he says he's written this so that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught about Jesus. My certainty and confidence grows in the scriptures, even as I see the scripture writers include some seriously flawed people in the family line of the Messiah. 
Again, if I was making this up about Jesus, you better believe I would edit out these names. But they're included here, and that should actually strengthen our confidence, our certainty in the things that we're being taught about Jesus. Luke's genealogy is different from Matthew's in a few ways. One, if you notice here, uh, as we just read, Luke's genealogy moves backwards rather than forward. It's retroactive. Matthew was writing primarily to Jews, so he starts with Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and moves forward to Jesus. But Luke is writing primarily to Gentiles, people that are not Jewish. And he starts with Jesus and moves all the way back to the father of all humanity, to Adam. The second difference is that Matthew kicks off his gospel with his genealogy. But Luke puts it between Jesus' baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. And we'll see why here in a few minutes. Third, these genealogies at some places include different names. One reason is that Matthew traces through the David royal line of Solomon and Judah's kings, but Luke follows the line through another one of David's sons, through Nathan. The names begin to diverge in verse 31. There are many theories about why all this is the case, and I'm not gonna take the time to lay out all the proposed solutions. Not sure I even understand all of them. But I do wanna focus on what I think Luke's clear big picture point is with this genealogy. Daryl Bach has gotten a really thick commentary on the gospel of Luke. And this is what Bach says. The overall intention of Luke's list is clear. He wants to show Jesus' connection to David, to Abraham, and to Adam. So that's the connection he wants to show. To David, to Abraham, and to Adam. Two of the biggest promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament are in Genesis chapter 12, in 2 Samuel chapter seven, if you wanna understand your Bible, you've gotta understand these chapters. Genesis chapter 12 and 2 Samuel chapter seven. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is promised that his seed, his line, a child will come and bless the whole world. In 2 Samuel seven, King David is promised that he will have a son that will come and sit on his throne forever. Matthew begins, again, his gospel with his genealogy. And he lists two of these three names in Matthew chapter one, verse one. We meet the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12 in 2 Samuel 7 in the first verse of our New Testament. This is what it says, Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you just read all the Hebrew scriptures, you wanna know, okay, who is this promised one? This promised one of Abraham, this promised one of David, here he is. And here's his genealogy, this is how the New Testament begins. But Luke didn't just want to include King David and Father Abraham, but the father of all humanity. Again, that's why he traces it all the way back to Adam. So I wanna spend the rest of our time, the rest of our few minutes together, focusing on these three names and seeing why they play a crucial role in Jesus' family tree and what that has to do with you. So we'll look at them in the order that Luke lists them, starting with David in verse 31. So these are the three points. I think they're listed for you in your handout. I'll just read them. Jesus is the son of David that has come to rule over the world. The second thing we'll look at is Jesus is the son of Abraham that has come to bless the world. And lastly, Jesus is the son of Adam who's come to conquer sin and death and Satan. So first point, we see how Jesus is the son of David who has come to rule the world. In 2 Samuel 7, this is the promise in 2 Samuel 7. 
when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, so this means David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So again, the promise to David is that he will have a son, one in his line that will sit on his throne forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Flip back to Luke chapter one. In Luke one, just maybe a page over, we see an angel coming and speaking to Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and telling her that she will be the mother of the Messiah. Look at verse 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So again, if you're making the dots, if you're listening, 2 Samuel 7, there's a clear reference here, right? It's called the son of the most high. He's gonna sit on the throne of his father, David, forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is this one. That's what Luke is saying here. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the true Davidic king. He's the one who's come to fulfill God's promise, his covenant with David. This promise was made to David over a thousand years before Jesus, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. And Jesus has come and fulfilled all of this. Jesus David's true and better son has come and the promise of the scriptures is that he will come again and will establish his kingdom forever. So Jesus is the son of David and he came to rule the world. Secondly, we see in verse 34 that Jesus is the son of Abraham who came to bless the world. To see this promise, this covenant, you have to go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. In Genesis 12, God makes a promise to old father Abraham. He promises that through his offspring, through his seed, a child would come and would bless all the families of the earth. It's clear from the beginning that God's plan was global. The plan was to bless the whole world. God repeats this promise, not just in Genesis 12, but in Genesis 15 and 17. Even though God repeats this promise over and over again, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, it's very clear that Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people, forgot this over and over again, forgot that they were meant to be a blessing to the world. But God didn't forget. The Apostle Paul makes clear that this promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 was always very specific. Another, chap another book and chapter that you need to be familiar with if you wanna put the Bible together is Galatians chapter three. Can you everybody turn there with me to Galatians chapter three? One of the most important chapters in the Bible if you wanna see how the Bible connects together. So you flip over there, we're gonna look at first at verses seven through nine in Galatians chapter three. Again, Paul is very clear that God's promise to Abraham in the beginning was very specific. So this is verse seven of Galatians chapter three. Know that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is amazing. God 
himself, Paul says, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And gospel just means good news. So what was the good news? Was that in you, all the nations will be blessed. But was God promising to do that through all the Jewish people? Look down at verse 16. Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It's not say into offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So Paul is saying that God's promise to Abraham is singular. It's about Jesus. God's promise to Abraham wasn't about building a Jewish nation, but about sending a savior to bless the world. Again, if you think about God's promise in the Old Testament, again, there's a filling out to these promises that happens all throughout the Old Testament. But when we get to Matthew 1.1, there's a narrowing in on one dude, right? All these things are fulfilled in one person, in Jesus of Nazareth. John said earlier in Luke chapter three, in verse eight, that he's telling Jesus, telling his hearers, don't think you're good with God just because you're Jewish, just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham. Jesus tells them God can make anyone, anything into a child of Abraham. Look down at Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29. Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So if you want to be a child of Abraham in the new covenant, where we are currently now in redemptive history. It's not about who your daddy is anymore, right? It's not about physical circumcision anymore. Paul tells us in Romans 2, a Jew now is not one outwardly, it's not the circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. It's about having faith in the promised one. Anyone who is united Jesus through faith is part of God's family. The church hasn't replaced Israel, but Jesus is Israel is what Paul's saying here. All who are united Jesus through faith are a part of the true Israel of God. The promise is that in Jesus' kingdom, people from every tribe and nation and tongue, people from every group, every ethnic group, all the ethnic groups that are on Ancestry.com and more will be represented in Jesus' kingdom. The gospel that God himself preached before into Abraham has now been fulfilled by Jesus and is being preached by his people to all the peoples of the earth. This will be a blessing to all the world. So Jesus is this promised one. He is the son of Abraham that has come to bless the world. Then third and finally, turn back to Luke chapter three. We see in verse 38 of Luke three that Jesus is the son of Adam the son of God that has come to defeat sin and death and the devil. Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God that has come to defeat sin and death and the devil. Luke traces back to Adam and not just Abraham, because again, he's writing to people that are primarily not Jewish. He's writing to his old buddy, Theo, Theophilus, right? He's not Jewish. It's important not just to trace back to the father of the Jewish nation, but the father of all humanity, of all people. And he's demonstrating by tracing back to Adam that Luke is making a very important point here. And he's placing it in his gospel at this very place for a very specific reason. This is listed right before Luke records Satan coming to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, which I imagine you'll cover next week. 
but we can't skip over the significance of this placement today. What's the connection to this? Well, if you're familiar with the Bible and think about Satan coming to tempt, you probably go all the way back to the very beginning, right? At least a few chapters in, in Genesis chapter three. In Genesis one and two, everything is good. Adam is walking with God. He's placed in a beautiful, lush garden with good food to eat all around him. Only one thing was forbidden, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, when, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. But then Satan comes and tempts Adam to believe the lie that God's withholding something good from him. Adam, our first father, believes that lie and eats of the tree and sin and death come into the world. This is why now, instead of everything being very good, as we see in Genesis 2, now everything is often very bad. All of our favorite people and plants and pets are passing away because of Genesis 3. But unlike Adam, Jesus in Luke 4 will not go into a luscious garden filled with good food to be tempted by Satan, but into a wilderness where he'll be tempted for 40 days without food. Like Adam, Satan will come to test and tempt Jesus. But unlike Adam, Jesus will overcome the devil's temptations. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. And earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what he says. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. If you wanna hear a fuller treatment of that, read Romans chapter five sometime. But the point is that Adam was the head of all of humanity. And through his sin, all died spiritually and will die physically. But Jesus, the God-man, has resisted the temptations of Satan and succeeded where Adam failed. He is the last Adam. In Adam, we all die but in Jesus, all are offered life. Jesus can do this because he died on the place, in the place of sinners on the cross. Jesus can offer this to us because he defeated the power of sin and death through his resurrection. So now he can offer new and eternal life to all who turn from their sin and trust in him alone to save them. 1 John 3, 8 is that Jesus, the son of God, appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God, who came to defeat sin and death and the devil. So since Jesus came as the God-man and he's the head of all humanity, he can legitimately bring people together from all over the world. He's the king of the cosmos who will bless all the fams of the earth. And he is the last Adam who will bring life to the world. He brings people like us who are so different, people with different family trees into the same room and makes us part of the same family in him. And as a family, we all come to the same table, right? We can come to the same table, no matter what our family trees are, no matter where they diverge from one another, no matter how much brokenness is in our families, no matter how much baggage we have, we can be cleansed in Jesus and we can be brought together as one because of what God's done for us in him. 